Father, thank you for the wonderful privilege we do have to sing your praises, to uh, give the glory to your name. And your son is wonderful. You are wonderful. And we thank you for what you've done, how you have wonderfully saved us from our sins. And you are uh, faithful and you will bring us to our heavenly home safely that you have uh, given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, and we will uh, someday be with you and your Son uh, forever. We thank you and look forward to that. And Lord, while we're still uh, sojourning on this earth, uh, you are conforming us to the image of your Son. And you're using uh, difficulties, you're using trials, you're using your Word to make us more like Jesus. And I pray as we look in your word today, you would do just that, that we would become more like your son, Jesus. And I pray for those who don't know you, that they would be convicted of their sin today and that they would not harden their hearts, but they would repent and believe in your son and be saved. We thank you for this morning. We commit it to you now in your son's precious name. Amen. Well, in these times, if you're a uh, believer, it can be discouraging. And now we're not uh, going through outright persecution uh, yet, but there's verbal persecution. You know, the Lord Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 5 that you're blessed when people uh, persecute you and cast all kinds of, or insults and say all kinds of evil falsely on account of me. That's persecution, and we've experienced that as the church. We might experience it in the church, out in the world, wherever it might be, at work, uh, with our friends, with our family. And when that happens, and uh, we see what's going on in the world, it can be easily discouraging, discouraging. It's certainly discouraging if you're being persecuted. And uh, it's interesting, as we're pondering these things this week, uh, just praying, you know, I've got an email from a, a lady from Equipping the Saints, and it was very encouraging, very encouraging. Uh, for some of you who don't know, that's our radio ministry, and she's in Wyoming, and I just wanted to read this because it goes with our passage today, which we're going to look at. She says, thank you very much for the excellent teaching on 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, regarding the rapture, catching up of the church in the air in the very near future. With the world being in so much turmoil and confusion right now, we believers understand the signs of the times and have so much to look forward to. Thank you for your encouragement in reminding us of the hope of eternal life that is within us. She says, thank you again for all you're doing in the great cause for the great cause of Jesus. And then she says, keep looking up for your salvation draweth nigh. God bless you all. She's absolutely right. We need to keep looking up. And the way we look up is to uh, look to our Lord Jesus and listen to his word and allow his word to change our hearts, to set our mind on the things above. And what we're going to see today is that when we encounter difficult times, we need to be encouraged. And certainly God uses believers to encourage us, but he also uses his word primarily. And so with that in mind, we're going to see encouragement or great encouragement for difficult times as we're going to see that faith's evidence brings about God's judgment and also his relief for his uh, children. Turn with me to first or turn with me to second Thessalonians chapter one. And we are going to be looking at verses five to ten. And this is a big passage. There's a lot there, but I think. The main points are pretty clear. Um, I think we'll be able to grasp and understand what the Lord is saying through the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians. Now, he's writing a young church. They're less than a year old. He's written his first letter to them, and he has rejoiced in their response to the gospel. They took it and believed it, not as the word of men, but the word of God for for what it really is, the word of God, that same word which performs its work in us. They had responded to the gospel and turned from their sin, true salvation. They turned to, to God from idols to uh, wait for his son from heaven and just to, to serve and wait for him uh, who delivers us from the wrath to come. They were truly saved, but yet they were suffering greatly. Suffering began when they started to follow Jesus Christ. 
And the Apostle Paul was concerned about them, so he writes the first letter to them to find out how they're doing. Or actually, after he sends Timothy to find out how they're doing, and then he gets a response and then writes this letter in response, 1 Thessalonians. And that's within a couple months of their salvation. Now, it's apparent that they were still suffering greatly for their faith. They're being persecuted. So the Apostle Paul needed to write another letter. And that's what we have in 2 Thessalonians. A letter that uh, explains what we'll see today concerning the great persecution they were going through, which addresses some false uh, letter that might have been brought forth to them or word supposedly from Paul about the day of the Lord had already come. And so they were all confused and they were uh, shaken in a sense. And then he had to give them some basic commands concerning their walk in Christ. And so this church is less than a year old, and he's sending them more uh, truth inspired by the Spirit of God. And today we come to a portion in this passage where we are going to see how uh, we can endure and be encouraged in difficult times. Again, turn your Bibles to Second Thessalonians. And um, I want to read... Uh, starting in verse 3, we looked at verses 3 and 4 last week, so we're just going to read through that, into our passage, uh, which is 5 through 10. Then I'm going to read 10 and 11 and 12 together, because actually in the original language, verses 3 through uh, 10, uh, 12 are actually one long sentence. It's all together. And so we need to see the context here. Verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each of you, each of you grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And then our passage, our passage. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. And then I'll read the portion we'll look at next week, Lord willing. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, Will, can you turn on these lights here as I get old? I can't see. They're over there. I'm reading, I'm going, oh, either my eyes are getting dim and I'm getting older this week, or the lights aren't all on, so. (laughs) Ah, there we go. I can see now. Okay, so this is an intense passage. If you were paying attention to what I read, this is a very serious passage. It has to do with the eternal destiny of those who have rejected Christ. And it has a little bit to do with those who are believers, but it talks about uh, the destiny of those who don't know Christ who were also persecuting these Thessalonians. And we're going to see it's an encouragement because God doesn't miss a beat. God doesn't miss a beat when the world beats up on his people, when the world uh, persecutes his, uh, his children. He doesn't miss a beat. And we need to know that. We need to know that God is a just God, a holy God, a righteous God. So with that in mind, when we enter these difficulties, how can we find encouragement uh, for difficult times for following Jesus? You do the right thing. You have a family issue. People may claim to follow Jesus. All these difficulties come with people who name the name of Christ, by the way, who appear to be supposedly following him. We'll see a lot of the persecution came from those who were supposedly following the Lord for the Jews, and the same thing with the Thessalonians, they had the Jews who were coming after them. 
So when we have that difficulty for, for doing what's right, whether it's in a, in a marriage, uh, whether it's at your work, uh, whether it's in the church, uh, whether it's in your family, with your relatives, whatever it might be, doing what is right, how do we find encouragement for that in those difficult times? Well, first of all, I think we're going to see today that we must realize that our enduring faith as believers, as we suffer for Christ, clearly points to the reality of God's future judgment upon those who are persecuting us. The mere fact that we are enduring points to God's righteous judgment in the future. We need to understand that because people will not get away with what they do to God's children. We pray they get saved, but if not, we see their end here today. Notice he begins in verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. Now, we need to look at this and understand that this uh, passage uh, is connected to what we have already spoken of. He says this is a plain indication. This is a plain indication. Now, you might notice also in your Bibles that the term this is is in italics. Now, what that means is the translators are saying this is not a word-for-word translation from the Greek. We've added this, they're letting you know, because it makes sense when it goes from one language to another. And often that's the case. It really is the intent, but it doesn't come over as a translation, so they'll put that in there. And it's okay here. You might see in the, NES, in the New King James, which is, that's also in there, and it's also in italics. And so he says, literally here, literally in the Greek, a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. And this term, plain indication, comes from the Greek word, en diagma, uh, which spoke of evidence or clear proof, uh, clearly revealing something, manifesting something plainly. So he says, a plain indication or manifest evidence of God's righteous judgment. But what's he talking about? We don't talk that way. I don't say a clear evidence of God's judgment. That's not complete, right? What's he talking about? And that's why the translators have added that little portion there to help us see that it points back to what we have already seen and what I read earlier. The reality that uh, these Thessalonians, uh, Paul, as he looks at their life and the response to suffering, he's obligated to give thanks to God for their faith their faith, which is, which is growing and abounding and overflowing and flourishing, and their love for one another, which is overflowing. He's bound by God to give thanks. And then he says in verse 4, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches for your what? Perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions with you, which you endure. He's saying, basically, your perseverance and faith in the midst of all the persecutions which you remain under and you bear up under, this is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. That's what he's saying. We'll get to that in a minute. What does that mean? Because it's kind of confusing. You see, these Thessalonians were being persecuted, as we'll see today, for the kingdom of God. They were not being persecuted for sin, they were not being persecuted for being jerky Christians, arrogant, uh, loudmouths, uh, casting pearls before swine. They were being persecuted for obeying Christ. They were being persecuted for the kingdom. He says and they were persevering under that. They were remaining under. And then they were at the end, it says endure. They were bearing up with, they were bearing up with these things, these afflictions, the word means pressure. Indeed, we know in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. It doesn't say all the time, but we will. We're going to enter into, like what the Lord Jesus mentions, uh, that persecution, which the word persecute just means to chase after. And you think about persecution, you look at like our, our culture these days, where if someone says something that's not politically correct, the Internet chases after them with persecution words, whatever it might be. Just goes from one place to another, goes to their work, tries to get them fired, whatever it might be. That's persecution, maybe politically speaking. But for believers, it's when we do what is right, and those who are in Satan's domain, just non-believers, those who are in his domain, uh, pursue us with their words, say things falsely account of us, and certainly physically. There's physical persecution around the world also. 
Remember what the Lord Jesus said. He said, if the world hates you, John 15, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, John 15, 18, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. A slave's not greater than his master. And we look at the persecution we might have gone through or have gone through, and I look at that, you know, personally, whatever it might be as a church, whatever it might be, it's still not that bad. Think about our master. He was persecuted to the point where he's brought to the cross by the hands of godless men, but according to God's predetermined plan. We haven't died yet. We haven't shed blood in our striving against the sin, in a sense. And so the world's going to persecute. And we saw back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, that these Thessalonians, when they came to faith, they experienced the same persecution that the Jews experienced from the hands of their countrymen when they came to faith. And Paul said, they're not good guys. They, 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 they persecuted and they also killed the Lord of glory, basically. Let me read that for you in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This talks about the beginning of the persecution that they're in, which has now expanded, as we'll see in 2 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse uh, 14. And this is an evidence the word is at work in them. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For, he explains, you also endured the same sufferings at the hand of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, Paul writes. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. They they think they're pleasing to God. It's in the name of God they're doing it, by the way. Usually it's the religious groups that persecute true believers, by the way, those either within the church or without. And he says, uh, but they're hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, hindering sharing the gospel, terrible sin. And he says here, the result that they always felt the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. And they would experience that wrath in 70 AD as God would, would destroy the temple and, and, and cast them out across uh, the world. We know in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians that uh, Paul was so concerned about their afflictions that he sent Timothy to see how they were doing. He was concerned about their faith and that the tempter might have tempted them. They were suffering for Christ. They were suffering for Christ. And I mentioned this in passing, but I want to read this also. Matthew chapter 5, you can just note this and I'll read this for you. Verse 10. Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake. That means the righteousness of Christ manifest. The rightness of Christ manifest in one's life because they're abiding and trusting in Jesus Christ. When you do the right thing because Christ is leading you by his spirit, using his word to change your heart, and you suffer for it, you're persecuted for righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hey, you're a true believer if that's the case. Blessed are you when men cast insults, here you go, at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. How so? On account of me you're following christ rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for so they persecute the prophets who went before you it's going to happen you see you need to understand the cost when you follow jesus by the way you know when you go build something you don't just go ahead and start building and not think about how much it costs you count the cost otherwise you look like a fool when you can't complete the building the reality is there's a cost to following jesus You will lose your sinful life, but you gain eternal life. You will be temporarily persecuted if Christ is manifest in your life. There'll be a sword in your families. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Mother against son and daughter and and, and so on. The members of his own household will be his enemies. 
The reality is there's a cost to it, but there's the eternal gain. There's the sufferings for the glories to follow. For the glories to follow. You make a decision. I've decided to follow Jesus. So these Thessalonians were being afflicted for a genuine relationship. Faux believers make believers don't suffer for Christ because Christ's righteousness is not manifest in their lives. They don't suffer for Christ. But real believers will suffer. We will temporarily suffer. They're the sufferings for the glories to fall. We will follow in the footsteps of Christ. And these Thessalonians were doing that. They were in a very worldly city, a city that was uh, the center of commerce and activity on the Ignatian Highway. Uh, it was very worldly. It's the place that Demas, when he deserted the Lord and, and Paul, went there to Thessalonica. It was an idolatrous city. It was full of uh, all kinds of sexual temptation and wickedness. And if you don't go along with that, you change. You're no longer that way. You stop doing what's wrong because Jesus is working in your heart. You're going to be, you may lose a relationship. You come to faith and you're doing what's wrong. You stop. You may lose that relationship. And so here he comes back and back in our passage, he says, the fact that you are enduring, you're remaining under, you're bearing up, which is from God, by the way. That very fact, because uh, when our faith is tested, it produces endurance. We say, James 1. That very fact is, back in our passage, a plain indication or manifest evidence of God's righteous judgment. Now you go, okay, I'm following how it connects, but what does it mean? As I study this, I struggled a lot over it. And I struggle a lot over the study. And I, I'm always praying, Lord God, what did you intend? I don't understand this. Please help me see from your perspective. And I'm very cautious not to go look at other people's work because then I get their bias. I want to learn from the word of God what he intended. What he intended. So what does it mean? How is it that enduring suffering is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment? That's an interesting thought. I didn't get it. Well, one well-known Bible teacher basically says that the term judgment speaks of God's purifying judgment of his saints in the context of persecution, which would be discipline. And that's true. God does use the difficulties upon us to purify us. 1 Peter chapter 4, But if anyone suffers as a Christian, verse 16, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, And if it begins with us first, a refining judgment, by the way, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty the righteous is saved, what will be the outcome of the godless man and the sinner? So that principle is true, but is that what our passage is saying? Is that what it's saying? I don't believe so, because as I looked at it and I looked at the context, he doesn't just say judgment, he says God's righteous judgment first of all it's a judgment that is right it is just it is a just judgment you don't usually see that term connected with our discipline you don't see that you see that connected with judgment and indeed if you look along here he explains right after that verse five go to verse six four it is only just for god to repay with affliction that's the judgment he's talking about Verse 8 and 9, dealing out retribution to those who don't know God. Verse 9, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. So I believe the judgment he's speaking of is God's judgment on the persecutors of these Thessalonians and of the ones who are persecuting Paul and believers as well. On a small scale, but we're going to see it even goes larger than that. So what does he mean here? Well, I'm confident This term righteous judgment speaks in the small sphere, as I've mentioned, of the judgment upon the persecutors of these Thessalonians and even greater those ultimately who do not know Christ and do not obey the gospel. So I believe the context demands that these very Thessalonians enduring in persecution remaining, they're not slipping out. They're not faux believers where difficulty comes and they're gone. They're not following Jesus anymore, at least in their actions. These true believers are. I believe it is a manifest evidence that God must judge those who are persecuting them. It is clearly an evidence. 
when you endure through what God allows in your life from those who are evil and wicked persecuting you, it is a plain indication that they are on their way to judgment. Because you are a genuine article because of your endurance in Christ. And therefore, God must righteously judge those who are persecuting you. I believe that's what he's saying. It's a plain evidence. So I need to know that. I need to know that those who are persecuting us will not get away with it. I need to know that God hasn't missed a beat. You see, verse 6, For after all, it is only just, or the word right. It comes from the word righteous. For God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now we know from Scripture that we are never to repay evil for evil. Uh, Romans chapter 12. We're to leave room for the wrath of God. Because God is still saving people in the interim. We're not God. We leave room for the wrath of God. And he will bring his wrath in his time because he's a just God. And it's only just. And your enduring is a manifest evidence that they're going to be judged. That they're going to be judged. Well, not only is it a manifest evidence that they're going to be judged, it's also a manifest evidence in a sense that you are worthy of the kingdom of God if you're enduring. Look at verse 5 again. This is a plain indication that speaking of their endurance in their persecutions, of God's righteous judgment, so that, or you could literally say, unto, unto this end, unto this end, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering you see that he's revealing a purpose here or unto this result that their persecution and the endurance thereof is unto something it's unto something it's a clear indication the persecutor is going to be judged but it's also unto something so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of god for which indeed you're suffering the term considered worthy speaks of, uh, is in a tense that's of a done deal. That you would be deemed worthy. Done deal. It's a tense that speaks of a, of a finished action. Counted worthy. Deemed worthy. Declared even. It could be translated declared worthy. So brothers and sisters, when you endure through sufferings, I'm not talking about the sufferings we think are sufferings. I'm talking about suffering for righteousness sake. For doing what is right in Christ. You have someone in your family that says they're a believer and you go to them graciously. Uh, Galatians 6, you share the truth with them. You share with them the other truths from other passages and they don't respond and they turn on you. That's suffering for Christ. A relationship broken because you're doing the right thing in the context of His grace so that they would be one under Christ. You suffer. You do the right thing in the body of Christ and people respond wrongly. That can institute suffering in you. So he says here, your endurance in the suffering for the kingdom is a, is a proof or an evidence of God's righteous judgment because he's just, but it also is a worthy indication that you are worthy of the kingdom of God for indeed which you are suffering. Now, the reality is when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are delivered from darkness. We were in the domain of darkness. We were, we were sin and death reigned. We were in Satan's domain, whether we understood it or not. And sin and death reigned, and we were on our way to the second death, which is eternal punishment. And Christ, by his grace, through faith in him, we were delivered from darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. So the kingdom of God is the sphere and domain of King Jesus. And he says here, unto or so that you may be considered worthy. Your endurance uh, is a plain indication of God's judgment so that you may be considered worthy. That you may be considered worthy for the kingdom of God, which indeed you're suffering. It's quite a statement. Um, what did the Lord tell Paul concerning the kingdom in Acts 26? Uh, turn to Acts 26. Acts 26, verse 16. And this is uh, the Lord speaking to Paul on the road to Damascus. It was Saul of Tarsus, and then he, he came and confronted him on the road. Why are you persecuting me, Saul? Lord, Lord, he, Saul goes, who are you? He didn't know who he was. He didn't know the Lord. 
Acts 26.16. Lord Jesus is speaking to Saul, soon to be Paul the Apostle. But arise, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appointed you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Look at this. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. Darkness is a, is, is, is a, it, it, it's metaphoric for, for sin and evil. The sphere of sin and evil. Turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. In order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Tremendous reality. You see, suffering for Christ um, uh, is an evidence that you have been delivered from darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. That you're counted worthy of that kingdom. Indeed, we saw that in 1 Peter 4. I read it earlier. It talks about not being surprised for the fiery deal that comes upon you for your testing. So some strange were happening. But to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. 1 Peter 4, so that at the Revelation of his glory, you may result with exaltation. We'll see that later. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You're a true believer. That's not talking about faux believers who are reviled in the name of Christ because they say everything, but they're wacky and sinful. It's talking about those who are truly manifesting the righteousness of Christ. You see, the reality is we need encouragement in the difficulties. Look at Acts chapter 14. This is an interesting passage. Acts chapter 14, verse 21. And after they had preached the gospel to that city... They made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith. How so? What did they say? How were they doing that? Saying through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. It's going to be a rough road. The reality is... We need encouragement in the midst of difficulty. Turn back a little farther in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. And you see the response of Peter and the disciples when they were told not to uh, speak of Jesus. And they were brought before the council. Acts chapter 5, verse 27. And when they brought them, they stood before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in the name of, in that name. There were this name, and behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers, who raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross, he is the one whom God exalted and to the right hand as prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. So, so is the Holy Spirit whom the, God has given to those who obey him. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they intended to slay him. And I'm not going to read this part, but there was one Pharisee named Gamal, kind of a politician guy. And he thought, well, we don't want to have all this trouble that we have Time when the pastor was trouble and this and that. Let's just flog them and let them go. So notice what he says in verse 40. And they took his advice, that's Gamal. After calling the apostles, they flogged them. That's uh, torturing them in a sense, with a whip in a sense. And ordered them to speak no more in the name of Jesus and then release them. And notice what they say, what he says. Verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had what been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name and every day in the temple and house to house they kept right on teaching and preaching jesus as the christ suffering does manifest the reality that you're the real deal you see we can get discouraged but then we realize wow i'm enduring and suffering because of christ 
This is an encouragement that I'm worthy by his grace of the kingdom for which I indeed am suffering. It's quite an amazing thing. We wicked, sinful beings saved by the grace of God, now trusting in Christ every minute, worthy of his kingdom. How is that? Because of Christ. What an amazing thing. We're considered worthy because of Jesus Christ, because he's worthy. It's his kingdom, and he's the one who has saved us. So then, we need to see our suffering and endurance in a different perspective. It's a manifest evidence that those who are actually coming against us are going to be judged, and it also is unto the reality that we're considered worthy of the kingdom for which, indeed, we are suffering. When we encounter difficult trials, we need to see this. We need to understand this because it's an encouragement. These Thessalonians needed it. Obviously, God decided they needed it and that we need it too. So what are we to do? What are we to do? As we'll see, we're to wait patiently. We're to wait patiently for God to bring about our ultimate relief and justice towards those who are doing evil to his church and his people. Notice what he says. Verse 5 again. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and give relief to those who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Do you see that? God is going to replay, repay affliction with affliction. God will deal out retribution to those who don't know him, to those who don't obey the gospel. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. God has it under control in terms of the evil that is in this world. And we need to see that rightly. Well, why does this happen? Why would God do this? Why would God allow uh, this to happen? Verse four, 6, for it is only... For after all, it is only just for God to replay affliction those with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. It's the right thing. For after all, or you could translate it since. It's just. It's the right thing. Since it is just. God is a righteous God. He's bringing forth a righteous judgment. It is only just for God. Remember, don't repay evil for evil. Leave room for the wrath of God. He says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. And here he's saying, I'm going to repay. People who persecute. Now, we don't understand this because we're not very much persecuted. When you've been persecuted for righteousness' sake by those who truly don't know him, maybe they're foe believers, whatever it might, might seem, then you, you want God to bring about his righteous judgment in his time if they don't repent. They don't repent. For after all, it's only just for God, or literally with God, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. The word repay means to recompense, to pay back. It's the right thing. It's the right thing. It's the right thing for him to do that, but it's also the right thing for to give us relief. I need to know when you're suffering for Christ, when we're suffering, that there's going to be relief. You need to know that because it's not easy. There's the pressure of all the difficulties for, for suffering for Christ. The affliction, the persecution. I need to know there's relief. The term relief means of a loosening. To give relief, to release. It's the right thing for God to do that. You see, we're being persecuted unjustly in these situations. And they were being persecuted unjustly. And it is the right thing for God to do. But before we gain that ultimate relief, which will come as we'll see when Christ comes ultimately... He's still weeding out sin in our lives, using that in our lives for good. He's even using it to open doors for why we have hope in the midst of, uh, in the midst of this sinful world. He's using it to, to, uh, bring us joy even in the midst of troubles. We can rejoice in the midst of those things, knowing what he's gonna do. But we need to know there is going to be ultimate relief. So now when does this eternal retribution begin and when is that relief? Here's when it happens. Middle of verse 7. 
or seven, and to give us relief as well, to, relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. And here's when it happens. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That's when it's going to happen. Yes, we want God to take care of everything now, but ultimately he's not going to until this time. He does intervene. We see it all throughout the Old Testament in times, little pictures here and there. We see it in the New Testament. But ultimately, relief doesn't come until we have the revelation of Jesus Christ from heaven. He's speaking of the day of the Lord. He's speaking of when Jesus comes back in glory. That's when he's going to make things ultimately right. We've got to remember that. We need to look forward to that. Well, you say, how can I say that's it? Well, it says when he shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That's future, right? Sounds pretty significant, doesn't it? Being revealed with angels in flaming fire. That sounds pretty significant. And then look down in verse 9, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from his from the gloriness of his power. When he comes, here you go, to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believed, for our testimony to you was believed. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, there is a day when Christ will come again. You see, God the Son came to earth the first time in grace. Jesus said, I didn't come to judge. He came to bring salvation. He did talk about judgment, future judgment, but he came to bring salvation. His first coming was in grace. And you can either accept that and be saved, or you can reject that, and then his second coming will bring about ultimately the beginning of your final judgment. The Bible really clearly talks about the reality of Christ's coming. Now remember for us that we are not destined for wrath as believers. First Thessalonians 4, we're going to be taken away to be with Jesus. John 14, a place he's prepared. And then he's going to begin the great tribulation and then the tribulation and the great tribulation, seven years. And he's going to come at the very end of that. We're not destined for this, but that signifies when he makes things right, when this world that is in rebellion to him is overthrown, when Jesus overthrows this rebellious world and takes back what is rightfully his, that's when he will bring retribution upon these people. That's when it begins. It's all together with that. There's so many passages. Let me share a couple. Look at Matthew chapter 24. You see, Christ is coming again. You know, those who say, where's the promise of his coming? Everything's the same. They sound religious there too, by the way, Second Peter. But he's going to come. He's patient. Not willing for any to perish. Matthew 24, 29. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and the tribes of the earth will mourn, all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together the elect from the four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. You see, when Christ comes after the church is gone, there will be some who believe during that time during the tribulation, specifically Israel mainly. And he's going to separate them out when he comes. But this talks about the great glory of his coming. Let Look at... Uh, Revelation 19, this is where we see the battle of Armageddon, where Christ comes and defeats his enemies. Defeats his enemies. He's going to deal out retribution. Matthew 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And by the way, I'm sharing the truth with you about what's going to happen in the future from God's word. I hope you listen. He says here, faithful and true, because someday you'll go, wow, that was true. I wish I would have believed, because now I'm in torment. And righteous, he judges and wages war, and his eyes are a flame of fire, and his head are many diadems, and his name written upon his name no one knows except himself, and he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. 
and from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so he will slay, and that so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, in order that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized along with the false prophet who performed many signs or signs in his presence by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped the image. And these were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. God is angry at sin. He has indignation every day, but he's gracious. He's not going to do this until the time is up. There's a time of salvation now. But he is going to take back what is rightfully his on that day. We see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, that when the lawless ones revealed that the Lord will slay him with the breath of his mouth. That will and bring an end to him with the appearance of his coming. Second Thessalonians two eight, an end of the Antichrist. Look at First Thessalonians. We saw it here also. God's sharing it in a lot of places. There is a future judgment. Now we see God's judgment upon the world and those who are in it at that time. Those who have passed away will also be at the great white throne judgment seat, judged for their sins, as we'll see. First Thessalonians five one. Now, as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anyone to be written to you. Hey, you, you already know this, believers. Three weeks in the faith, and they knew this. You've been a believer for more than three weeks. You should be knowing this. You should read through First Thessalonians. He says, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then notice what it says. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pains upon a woman, and they shall not escape. One last passage I want to share about the day, Lord. Turn to Isaiah 13. This is Yahweh's day, the Lord's day. Man is having his day right now in rebellion, and yet there's a remnant being saved, but uh, Yahweh will have his day. He will take back what is rightfully his. And in that day, he's going to bring relief. and He's going to bring punishment to those who have rejected him. Isaiah 13, verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt, and they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them, and they will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven, their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud." and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold, mankind than the gold of Ophir. God is mad at sin, and he will bring his judgment. This is his judgment physically upon the earth. Those who would be there. For instance, if the Lord was to come today for the church and take us away, there'd be seven years, and when Christ comes at the end of that, this is when this happens. Ultimately, our persecution will end with the coming of Christ because those who persecuted will be taken out of the way. It's ultimately then. Now, we're delivered before that, but it's seen together. So back in our passage. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction, verse 6, those who afflict you and give relief to you are afflicted and to us as well. 
when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That's when the ultimate relief comes, when sinners no longer can exercise their will on this earth, in a sense. The ladies have been going through this in James chapter 5. Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. God's going to deal with sin. People say, how could God let all this evil go on? Mocking him, really, what they're saying. And they don't understand the only reason he's not doing this to that evil is because he's saving people. And if he was to come and judge, he would have to judge them before they were saved. He's not willing that any should perish. Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient and strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Coming of the Lord. Well, what's going to happen when he comes? What's going to happen? Look at verse 8. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Dealing out retribution. That means giving or meeting out literally the word vengeance. Remember we said the scripture reveals God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Don't return evil for evil. Leave it in God's hand. Leave room for the wrath of God. It will come. This term vengeance speaks of retributive justice. Verse 9, this retributive justice ultimately has to do with, look at it, paying the penalty of eternal destruction for your sins, as we'll see in hell, because you haven't come into a relationship with Jesus. He's now going to talk about the retribution to all who have rejected Christ, in which the persecutors are a smaller piece of that. But yet, as we see, those who don't know Christ, when the restraints are off, they all, in a sense, persecute. What happened to Jesus? Eventually, all the non-believers in Jerusalem said, Crucify him! The restraints were off. So who is this against? There's two different groups. It seems like, but I think we're going to see they're the same. Those who do not know God, verse 8, retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I studied this, this is not two separate groups. This is actually one group described two different ways. We see that from Scripture. You see, the reality is those who don't know God speaks of those who don't have a real relationship with the living God. Now, there are some that say they do. They, they have a full relationship and they say, Lord, I know you, and they think they do. And Jesus will say, Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. You're still in your sin. You're still sinning without a heart that sees it as wrong, without a heart that needs forgiveness. Depart from me, I never knew you. Those who don't know God, there's no relationship. The Apostle Paul shared with the Galatians, Galatians 4, verse 8, However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those things by nature are no gods. There was a time when you didn't know God. But now you have come to know God, rather be known by him. And that's through Galatians 1 that God came to to, to, to die for our sins, to deliver us from this present evil age. So how do we come to know God? How do I come to know him? Do I just uh, try to search him on my own? How do I do that? How does one come to know in a relationship the living God? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1. God has ordained it because man's problem is sin and pride. And man even tries to come to God with his own pride and sin. And so God has chosen the foolishness of something to shame the wise. 1 Corinthians 1.21 For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. You can't come to know him through your own wisdom. Try to figure it out. Try to do it your way. Every, you know, Add your little stuff in here and there. It's not going to happen. Because God is eviscerating pride through the gospel. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message, to, message preached to save those who believed. We come to know God through the gospel. The good news that Jesus Christ took on human flesh. God took on human flesh, and he lived the perfect life. 
And he died for our sins. We are sinful. We are in need of salvation. We need to humble ourselves, see our sin rightly. If you're saved from your view of your sin rather than his view of your sin, you're not saved. It's his view of your sin. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. And whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the gospel. You see, the wages of sin is death. We have a set, we're separated from God. We don't know him. We don't have a relationship with him. Isaiah says your sin has caused a separation between uh, you and God. So he doesn't hear. His arm's not so short. His ear's not so clogged he can't hear. But your sin's in the way. That's those who don't know God. And then he says, and explains it in parallel in a different way, and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You see, the gospel is the good news. I just explained it. And obedience is synonymous with belief. You see, if Jesus says to you in his word, repent, like he said in Mark 1.15, repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Jesus said that. If he tells you, God tells you, declares to all men everywhere in his word that you must repent because he's fixed a day in which he's going to judge. If you reject that, you're disobeying the gospel and you will receive the penalty that we will look at. The penalty of eternal destruction. So it's important to realize he's not just saying just those persecutors there are going to get this. He's saying that everybody who doesn't know him and everybody who doesn't obey the gospel, the two in this together, the same thing from a different perspective. And what will this retribution look like? Let's finish up here. Verse 9, And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This is a, this is a uh, terrifying statement. I pray you're not like the rich man in, in Luke 16 who was saying, go send Lazarus to my, to my, uh, my uh, family to warn them about this. It was true, but no opportunity to repent at that time. If someone comes from the dead, they'll repent, he said. He said and the Lord said, no, Father Abram, no. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He says, these will pay... The penalty of eternal destruction. The term pay the penalty means just that. It's the penalty for rejecting Christ. And that's manifest in their persecution, right? They're going to be paid for that. The term eternal destruction, uh, eternal means forever. The term destruction doesn't mean annihilation. It means complete ruin. You see, you have the will. You can stand up and walk out here. You can do whatever you want. You can sin all you want. You have the will to sin against God. You can do it all you want. You will be restrained in punishment from sinning in that sense. It's exercising your own will forever and ever and ever. Complete ruin. Eternal ruin. You can reject Christ all you want, but someday you will, you will go to complete ruin. You'll pay the penalty of eternal destruction and that happens in the eternal flame. Jesus talks about hell. He calls it an eternal flame that was prepared for the devil and his angels. End of Matthew 25. In Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9, he talks about being cast into eternal fire. And in parallel, he says, into fiery hell. In Matthew 25, verse 41, he shares, Then I will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus shares in Matthew 5.22, If you're angry with your brother, as evidenced by your words, you shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Matthew 5.29-30 through 30 talks about the whole body being thrown into hell. Matthew 10.28, And do not fear those, Jesus says, who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. He speaks to the Pharisees' inability to escape the sentence of hell, Matthew 23, 33. In Mark 9, 43, respectively, uh, he says, um, he speaks of going to hell in parallel with the unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What about Luke 12, 15? I warn you to fear the one who, after he is killed, has the authority to cast into hell. I tell you, yes, fear him. 
Jude and Peter speak of black darkness, which is prepared, reserved for those false teachers who are going to hell. It's a black darkness. Revelation chapter 20 speaks of the second death, the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone. And everyone whose name was not written in the land's book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. How's your name in the land's book of life? Earlier in Revelation, you overcome. How do we overcome? First John 5, through faith in Jesus Christ. Earlier in Revelation 14, speaking of those who would receive the mark, he says they will be tormented with fire and brimstone, and their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Same place. So back in our passage, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. You know, you get to experience the blessing of Christ in people who know him around you, the goodness of God, even though you may not accept it. The grace of God, you'll be separated from him forever and ever and ever. And away from the glory, our passage says, of his power. Everything that is glorious about God that we will enjoy forever, you will be separated from. You will not experience it. You'll be punished in torment, black darkness, for rejecting God's provision of salvation for your sins. For not obeying the gospel. That's what God says. Do you want to go there? Play games with God. Reject the conviction of his word concerning your sin and the Savior. Choose to see your sin from your perspective rather than his. And you're on your way. Choose to see God in a different way than God reveals himself in the word. And you're on your way. Try to come to God through your own means rather than by faith in Christ. And you're on your way. So why hasn't this happened yet? Ben read it earlier. God is patient, not willing for any to perish, Second Peter, but the day of the Lord will come. But what will that like be for us, for believers? Notice as we finish, verse 10, when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. It's going to be glorious. Peter talks about it, that when we see him, we'll rejoice with joy inexpressible. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5, speaks of his holy ones coming with him when he comes. You see, we will be taken out of here to be with him where he's prepared a place. And then when he comes back, we will be with him because we're going to be with him forever. And we will be with him. And we will experience that day, the glory of his coming. And it says here, when he comes to be glorified in his saints. Somehow we're going to enter into that glory somehow. Remember Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ who is our life is revealed, that's what he's talking about, then you will be revealed with him in glory. I don't understand it, but it's going to be glorious. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day, it's going to be glorious. We're on the winning team because of Christ. Sin, evil, rebellion, wickedness will have been defeated. Christ will take back what is rightfully his. It's be glorious. But not for those who will be paying the penalty of eternal destruction. But it will be glorious for us. And notice he says, and to be marveled among all who believe. We will marvel. We'll marvel at our Savior coming back to do everything he's promised. To make it right. We will marvel at this. And why will that happen? Because, he says here, for our testimony to you was believed. Our testimony from the word of God that we shared with you, Thessalonians, you believed it. Therefore, you're going to be with him and you're going to marvel at it. Yes, it's difficult now. You're being persecuted. But your endurance is a sign. It's a manifestation that those who don't know him will be judged and that you will be relieved and we will see him and come with him back in glory and marvel at him taking back what is rightfully his. We've got to remember that. The victory is in Jesus forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. And I pray for anyone here who currently is destined for uh, your eternal punishment. Lord, I pray that they'd be convicted of their sins, not from me, but from you by your spirit.
that they would recognize their dire eternal state and that they would, from their heart of hearts, call out and believe in your son Jesus to save them from their sins, that they would be delivered from the wrath to come. And Lord, for us who recognize there's going to be suffering, help us to see it in light of the glorious reality of your son making everything right. And we are in him. Pray that we would not see things from a temporal standpoint, but from an eternal standpoint, that we would encourage one another also. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.